We'll start today with the debrief, our roundup of the JPR News of the Week. JPR News Director Eric Newman is joined by reporters Jane Vaughn and Roman Battaglia. Good morning. Good morning. I'm here with Jane and Roman from the JPR Newsroom. Um, we're going to start out with a voice that is familiar to JPR, but who has not been in our studios for the past two years. That's mm-hmm. Jess Burns, who's a reporter at Oregon Public Broadcasting. Um, in recent years, she's covered the environment out of our Ashland studios. These days, uh, Jess hosts an OPB show called All Science, No Fiction, which spotlights North, uh, the Pacific Northwest scientists and the work that they're doing. So we're going to start out by playing one of her newest stories uh, from that series. Here's the intro to that. Coveralls. Check. Boot covers. Check. Hood and mask. Check. Check. Sabo Moslehi is covered head to toe and ready for a shift in the clean room. It's not comfortable wearing that gear. It's hot. It gets hot. Yep. But the gear is necessary. I can fabricate samples, specifically silicon wafers, without any dust or contamination getting into the surface. The University of Oregon researcher doesn't want anything to come between the retinal implant interface she's making and living cells from the eye. Her new design could eventually help restore eyesight to millions of people. Physicist Richard Taylor heads the lab developing the new bionic eye. So vision is our primary sense. It's fantastic. It works beautifully until it stops working beautifully. Retinal diseases often attack and destroy the light receptors at the back of the eye. The idea is that long term, we will drop this implant in, which will have an array of artificial photoreceptors. Light will come in, generate electricity, and then that will pass to the natural neurons that have not been affected by the diseases. Retinal implants are already being tested in people, but so far, none have succeeded in significantly restoring vision. So we thought, okay, if the the implants are not working, there must be a reason for that. Their answer, brain and machine just aren't fully communicating. Moslehi and Taylor are hoping to solve this problem by finding a pattern and texture for the implant interface that human brain cells, the neurons, want to attach to. A lot of the artificial electronics tends to have smooth surfaces, and smooth surfaces don't exist in your body. The shapes that do exist in your body are fractals, patterns that repeat themselves at smaller and smaller scales. Some people say it's the fingerprint of nature, other a bit more fancy say it's the geometry of nature. Think tree branches, rivers, blood vessels, and even neurons. We thought, okay, what if we build an electrode that has a fractal shape that sort of mimics the shape of the neurons? Would that eventually end up increasing the resolution of the potential future implants? Like with digital photos, the better the resolution, the sharper the image. That's our goal. Taylor and Moslehi initially focused on a fractal design called an H-tree, essentially a repeating letter H pattern. And remember that silicone wafer Moslehi had in the clean room? She eventually built up the H-tree pattern on its surface. Then she put the wafer in a Petri dish with retinal cells from a mouse. To her delight, 
the neurons latched onto the raised H-tree pattern. But even more importantly, Muslehi saw that the neurons' protector cells, called glia, funneled into the spaces around the H's. The very first time that we imaged these samples under the microscope and I saw a big cluster of glial cells within the gaps, it was like, oh my God, we did it, it happened. Without the glia, the brain wouldn't be able to read any signals from the implant. They believe that by combining the glia life support with better neuron connections, what the brain sees with the implant will be much clearer. And eventually, the science could usher in the first successful generation of bionic eyes. In Eugene, I'm Jess Burns. So that was OPB's Jess Burns, formerly from the Jefferson Public Radio Studios, now up in the Portland area with her uh, new story about bionic eyes on the OPB series, All Science, No Fiction. <laughs> um, now we're going to turn to Roman Battaglia from the JPR Newsroom. Um, Roman, you've been working on a lot of stories over the past week. Uh, last night, you were here in Ashland at a community meeting over a new homeless shelter that the city is building. Why is this meeting being held? Yeah, luckily it was right on the SU campus. I got to walk right down to the student union and they were having this community meeting essentially to learn about the issues that residents have with this new shelter the city is going to be opening, this new emergency homeless shelter. Um, they're trying to get more buy-in, kind of learn about what issues residents have. Um, when I was there, I didn't really know what to expect, but there were a lot of people that showed up. I think I counted around 100 people that showed up. I know that city council members had been walking through the neighborhoods around where the shelter is on the east side of Ashland, like knocking on doors, leaving flyers, letting people know this was happening. Um, and so they're just trying to get learn about the issues that people are having about this shelter. Um, so people brought up a lot of different concerns, mainly about public safety. I know that people were talking about different instances. They've seen people who might not be homeless, but concerns about people breaking into their homes or campers and like, you know, causing crime and dumping trash in different areas, especially along the railroad and the bike path over there. Um, and I think a big concern a lot of people have, especially after the Almeida fire, is people starting fires. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of vegetation in areas. It can be really hard for the city to kind of clean up vegetation because different people own different properties. So people starting fires is a real big concern. And so they're not necessarily worried about the shelter itself opening, but kind of worried about like the people who kind of come to near the shelter because that's where the services are who might not be using the shelter itself. Um, people were also frustrated about the quick purchase of this building. It, it kind of happened really quickly. And I know that the city had grant funds they've been using to purchase this and they had a limited amount of time to use those. And so if they didn't purchase the shelter in time, they were gonna have to return all of the state funding and then they wouldn't be able to buy a shelter at all. So they, that's why it was kind of really quick. Um, and it seems like they were listening to their concerns and kind of writing down stuff to address there. Okay, great. So give us a little bit of background about just what this shelter is going to be and what do city officials have to say about it? Yeah, so it, from what I know, it sounds like the shelter is going to have around 30 beds there. Um, it's going to be like an emergency homeless shelter, essentially. It's in this old building on Ashland Street. Um, and if you're in Ashland, it's next to the oil stop and the shopping cart. It's As you kind of drive over the bridge, you can barely see it over there. 
Um, it's the city bought the property last month from the old owners, um, and then they're sort of planning on opening it on November 1st. But it's going to be a really short time to be open as an emergency shelter. It's only been open for like a two and a half months through January 10th. Yeah, the reason because of that is because that's when the governor's emergency order on homelessness ends. Um, so that's kind of the explanation for why the shelter is ending then. And so uh, they won't have any more state funding after that. But mm-hmm. the emergency order could be extended. I mean, it's only been for a year. So if homelessness hasn't been fixed, the emergency order could be extended past then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's being funded mostly through state grants, around $2 million for the shelter. I mean, it's part of this kind of statewide effort to address homelessness. Um, other cities in Jackson County and other counties have gotten money for addressing homelessness. So part of Ashland's mandate is we need to open up 30 beds in our city. Um, A local housing nonprofit, Aura, is going to be staffing the shelter for the city. So if you don't know, Aura runs another shelter out of the old Super 8 motel just a little bit further down Ashland Street. Um, Aura Executive Director Cass Sinclair was there, and she said they've been really successful helping people out finding housing. Uh, Since starting in 2021, they've helped 400 homeless people find permanent housing, and they've kept another 400 people from getting evicted. Hmm. So really successful. A lot of people were surprised about that, me as well. Um, So Aura's going to have staff at the shelter 24-7, and they're also going to have navigators at the shelter as well, which is a big part of their program at their own shelter. The way it works right now at the Aura Center is we'll check in with somebody in the morning. Hey, I know you've been working on getting a birth certificate or a driver's license or whatever. I've got a spot open today. And that's why we're so hugely successful in helping people remove their barriers because they have such access to navigation. And they'll have same, the same access to navigation at, at the Ashland Shelter. Okay, so lots of residents have concerns about this new homeless shelter being created in town. But it's really kind of a temporary homeless shelter, and then it'll yeah. become more of an emergency shelter mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, severe storms and weather and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So how are city officials going to respond to all these concerns the residents have? Yeah, the first thing I noticed in the meeting was they were trying to explain why this place was chosen. Um, it seems like there's – according to them, there's just not a lot of places to put an emergency shelter in Ashland. They were like, Ashland is a very – lateral city or whatever, like it's very strung along one street. And so you don't have a lot of like actual space to put a shelter and it's very uh, residentially dense. Ashland has a lot more residential property than commercial property compared to other cities. So there's not like you could just plop it down in the middle of a commercial section. So Mm -hmm. this was a commercial area. It's still near a neighborhood, but anywhere you put it in Ashland, it's going to be near a neighborhood and people are going to have concerns. I know that um, the city attorney was saying that, you know, there's problems with homeless people all over the city. It's just because you put the shelter here doesn't mean you're not going to have problems elsewhere. So, you know, they're listening to a lot of people. They're going to have to work with a lot of partners, property owners. They're going to have to, like, work with the county, for example, because the county owns some property in Ashland, and so they can't enforce their city codes on county property in their city. Um, Mayor Tanya Graham even promised some stuff while we were there. She said that they were going to start cleaning up the railroad area near the shelter within the next four weeks. Um, That's kind of a really hard area because they have to work with the railroad, who has been notoriously not willing to work with them on this stuff. But the city is like, we will go and clean up the trash on your property. Um, And then they're also going to create a neighborhood council to get residents involved in kind of addressing these concerns and get some of that buy-in. The mayor is going to be on that council to kind of work with, have a direct line to the mayor. And she actually lives in the neighborhood next to the shelter. So she has, you know, her own concerns too. Hmm. 
Um, what are the next steps with uh, getting this building renovated so it can become either emergency shelter or homeless shelter? Yeah, so the previous owner of the building is moving out starting today, uh, and then the city is going to be renovating the shelter over the next month. So there's going to be some more public forums. I know there's one on October 2nd to kind of talk about the implementation of the shelter. They still haven't hammered out some of the details, like how people are going to apply. I know that the mayor had said that people aren't going to go to the shelter itself to apply to get in, so they might go somewhere else, but they haven't figured that out. They're also planning on having an open house at the shelter in mid-October, so you'll be able to go there and see what the shelter is going to look like, how it's going to operate. And so, yeah, it'll open on November 1st. It's going to run through January 10th for now. Um, when I talked with Cass Sinclair, she said, there's talk that there's more state funding that could come down that would help them keep the shelter open for longer. So theoretically, it might stay open for a while. And then after that, if they don't have any more funding, it's just going to act as the city's severe weather shelter. So that's for smoke, you know, heat, cold weather, um, typical things right now. That's kind of been moving around places. And so it'll be good to have a permanent spot for that. Um, it'll also be an emergency shelter, not just for homeless people right now, but for like disasters, if a fire comes through or something else and people lose their homes, this could be a place for people to come and shelter if they need to. And this is just kind of like a good place for that in general because it's got a really large footprint, mm. a small building. So it's good for like trucks to come and go for emergency supplies they're kind of talking about. That was one of the benefits of having this property. Gotcha. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to quick turn to another story that you've been following uh, that we've talked about in the past, which is Shasta County which uh, there's a new law in the state of California to ban hand counting of votes. So you covered an update last Friday to the attempt to hand count ballots in elections in Shasta County. Just briefly tell us what happened there. Yeah, so this was about Assembly Bill 969. Um, this bill on f last Friday, they passed the California Assembly, which means it's headed off to the governors for a signature. Um, it's specifically targeted at Shasta County. And what this would do is it's going to ban hand counting for any regularly scheduled elections with more than 1,000 registered voters and for special elections with more than 5,000 registered voters. So most elections in the county, you're mm -hmm. not going to be able to hand count things anymore. And that was kind of aimed at Shasta County because right-wing supervisors there had been trying to hand count ballots in future elections, which research has found is more expensive, more time consuming, and it's just less accurate than using machines. And so this was approved by the legislature. When could it go into effect? Yeah. Um, according to the state law, the governor has until October 14th to sign any bills that have been passed. The legislature has been, I think they adjourned today. Um, so he has until October 14th to sign any bills. And yeah, we'll see what happens. We've had the county board chair there in Shasta County has said that they're going to possibly sue the state over this. Okay, we'll, we'll continue to follow that, I'm sure. That's going to do it for the debrief this week. Uh, thanks, everybody. Um, you can reach our newsroom with comments about our coverage at our website, ijpr.org. You can find this uh, anywhere else you find your podcasts. 